Well, this week I have um, been doing a lot of thinking about some of the significant questions we get asked in our lifetime. And um, as I started to kind of think through this, I thought of one of the very first significant questions I was ever asked. And I would venture to guess that every single one of us in this room have been asked this question multiple times, actually. As little girls, when people would lean down and say, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I, from as little as I can remember, my answer to that was always, well, I want to be the president of the United States. Thank you, Jesus, that that is not the calling on my life, (laughs) right? (laughs) But then I moved into this phase where it was just honestly, I just want to be whatever will make me rich and famous. And maybe that's actually why I wanted to be the president, because I figured that was the most famous person in the world, so I'll just be that person. Little girl's dreams. Then I moved into a place where I actually started to get more serious about what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I decided I wanted to be a news anchor. I wanted to tell people's stories for a living. So I actually went to school and studied broadcast journalism to do that, but God had different plans for me. Funny enough, the one thing I never, ever even thought of or said I wanted to be was a pastor. And here I am, but God is good, and he leads us where we need to be. You know, another significant question I was asked was when I was about 25 years ago was um, when my now husband asked me if I would marry him. And the answer to that question, of course, was life-changing. And then I thought of this really interesting question that my daughter asked me when she was five years old. She's strapped in the back seat of the car. For some reason, it was just the two of us, and we had two hours in the car together. And at the beginning of the journey... She says, Mom, I want to know how babies are made, and I want the real answer. (laughs) And I was like, okay, you're five. (laughs) What's the appropriate answer for a five-year-old? And that was an interesting conversation. But what's the most important question you've ever been asked? What's the most significant question we're ever asked? Now, I did a little research on this, and uh, you won't be surprised to know that philosophers actually argue about stuff like this. What's the most important question out there? And I'm guessing that you could come up with some of the answers, like, what's the meaning of life? Why am I here? And where did I really come from? What's my purpose? And as I kept digging into this, there, there was this one question that kept rising to the surface that people agreed was actually the most important question. And that was one simple word, why? Why? Now, some of you, if you're teachers, would say, yes, that is an amazing question. If we could get people to ask why and then go do some research on it, oh, glory. The rest of... You may be thinking something different. I know as a mother, I think, are you kidding me? That is the worst question on the planet. The answer is because I said so. That's why, right? Can I get an amen? (laughs) But what's the most important question out there? I mean, like the most important one, because I actually don't agree with the philosophers. I think they're wrong. And I'm not a philosopher, but I'm a Jesus follower. And I believe Jesus asks us the most important question we will ever be asked and that every single human being on this planet is accountable to answer. No one is exempt from answering the question. And it is simply a question that Jesus asks us in the Gospels when he says, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? 
Now, Jesus asked this question of his disciples um, after they had been journeying with him. They had heard him teach the truth. They had seen and witnessed miracles. They had seen and witnessed healing. And in fact, when Jesus asked this question, it's, it's pretty close to right after he feeds thousands of people with one small lunch. And then they take a pause, and I'm guessing they sat down to rest for a few minutes, and Jesus leans in, and he says this to them, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, that's a term that he uses to refer to himself, the Son of Man. And they replied, well, I mean, some say you're John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or, or one of the prophets. But then he looks Peter in the eye, and I believe he leans in, And he says to him, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And that's what he's asking us. This morning and all through our lives, what about you? Who do you say I am? Actually, it doesn't matter who anyone else says he is. It matters what you say about him and who he is. Now, this week, we did some study on Jesus. We used the creeds as our guide to walk through some of the unique claims of Jesus and who he is. But I thought it would be good for us to also dive into just a little bit about who Jesus actually claims he is for himself. Words from Jesus's mouth about who he is. Now, I'm just going to rattle some of these off. They'll be on the screen. Um, But these are some of the claims, not all of them, some of the claims that Jesus makes. First, Jesus claims to be one with the Father. He says in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Next, Jesus claims to be able to forgive sins. In multiple places in Scripture, he does this. But one time at the well to the Samaritan woman, he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus also claims to be himself without sin. What a lofty claim. The Pharisees are challenging him and they ask him, and he asks them back, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And the answer, of course, is no. Jesus also claims that he is the giver of eternal life. John 5, 24 says, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. All we have to do is believe to cross from death to life. That's quite a claim. Jesus also claims to be able to answer our prayers. He says, you can ask anything in my name and I will do it. And Jesus claims to reveal the father to us. The disciples are challenging Jesus and saying him, Lord, just show us the Father. That will be enough for us. And Jesus answers, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And that's in John 14, 8 through 10. These are a lot of claims. He claims to be one with the Father, to forgive sin, to be without sin himself, to give eternal life, to answer prayer, to reveal God In short, Jesus is claiming to be equal with God. He is claiming to be God. And the religious leaders of the day did not miss this. They knew it, and that's why they sought to kill him. 
You'll read through the gospel all of these moments where they're just incited and they are furious because Jesus is claiming to be God. And they pick up stones to hurl at him because he claims to be God. So don't miss it. I often wonder, what would it have been like to be in Jesus' presence 2,000 years ago? Like to, to brush up against him, to see him do some of these things, to hear his teaching, to hear him claim these things about himself. How would I respond? Do you ever wonder that? Do you ever wonder if you would respond well to him or you would walk away? I think it's interesting, though, that there were all these different theories about who he was. Some say he's a prophet. Some say he's a great teacher. Here's the reality about Jesus. Jesus makes all of these claims about himself, and they are either true or they aren't. There's really no middle ground. And if these claims aren't true, we are hard-pressed to say he is just a good moral teacher. Because if you claim to be able to forgive sin, if you claim to be able to give eternal life and you can't do it, I'd say that makes you downright evil to ask people to trust you in that way. So he is either saying the truth or he's saying a lie. And if he's saying a lie, he's either evil or I guess the other option is he's just crazy because <laughs> he believes these things about himself that aren't true. I love how C.S. Lewis um, talks about this. And I want to read you this extended quote from Mere Christianity because it's so good and I love how he puts it into words. He's basically telling us that he doesn't want us to make this mistake of not knowing who Jesus is. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and you can call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with some patronizing nonsense about him being just a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not attend to. I love this quote because it just, it's so true. And people have summarized this to say, Jesus is either a liar, or he is a lunatic, or he is your Lord. Those are our options. He did not lead great teacher and prophet open to us. So who do you say he is? Well, I want to take a step back, though, and ask a different question. Why does it even matter? Why do we need Jesus to be this Lord that he says he is? Well, we need him because we need a savior. We have two problems, don't we? We have a sin problem and we have a death problem. We have a sin problem and we have a death problem and Jesus has come for both of those problems. So let's talk about our sin problem. I don't need to tell you you have a sin problem, do I? You know it. 
you know it deeply. I wrestled with my sin problem this morning before I came here. We are entrenched in it. And here's the thing that I actually think is a little bit unfair. The cards have always been stacked against us. See, we inherited sin. We inherited it. It means as soon as we were born, we were born with the sin nature. Romans 3.23 says that we have all sinned, every single one of us, and we all fall short of God's glory. I love how the New Living Translation says it. It's we fall short of God's glorious standard. Every single one of us. And it's because we've inherited this sin nature that we are all sinners. But let's be honest. Even if we didn't inherit it, we would have chosen it, right? God's standard of glorious perfection is not just don't kill someone. It's don't even think anything bad about someone. I can't do that. I can never meet God's standard of glorious perfection. But we've inherited that sin nature. And that's why Jesus, in 2 Corinthians 15, is actually called the second Adam. And that's why, as you studied in your lesson, that Jesus had to be born of a virgin because he needed to break the inheritance. He could not be born from the line of Adam because he needed to not have it just built into his DNA. Now, he was still very much a human who could choose to sin. He just wasn't born with it. And it was still very difficult for him to walk all of his days on this earth in complete unity with the Father, which is how he lived a perfect and sinless life. So Jesus comes and he solves our sin problem because he lives the life that we were actually never even able to live. We didn't even have a chance. And I got to tell you, I'm actually kind of grateful because I would have screwed it up so early but we didn't even get the chance. He did, and he did it perfectly. We have a sin problem, but we have a death problem too, don't we? Every single one of us will die. It's just the way it is. We have a death problem. And death set in the moment sin came. Let me take you all the way back to Genesis chapter two. It says this, the Lord God took the man, Adam, and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And then the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, Adam was not plucked out as soon as he ate from the tree, but death and decay started to set in immediately. The other thing that happened, though, almost immediately, was God's extravagant grace was given. Do you remember how last week Amy was talking about how God put the stars into place, and then it was almost as if he was knitting together this just intricate creation with us as the pinnacle of it? But he did that with his animals too. These beautiful things that he created. And in the hand of the creator, he takes one of these animals and he crushes it so that his people will be able to be clothed over. He takes his creation and he inflicts the first death upon creation for 
man, for woman, for us. The first death happens because of sin. And this starts the forward looking to Jesus. And as we read through our Bible and we get into the Old Testament and we read the law, we see that there's this atonement, this sacrificial system that is set up where these perfect spotless lambs are brought to the temple and they are killed and their life and their blood covers over the sins of the people. But this system was only temporary. And so it had to happen again and again and again. It was this vivid reminder of the costly costs of sin, of the brutality that was needed to just cover over what we had done to reject God. Over and over and over again. It's kind of like credit card debt. We pay it off and then we immediately start accruing it again. See, it, it just covers over to that moment and then the next debt starts and then it covers over to that moment and then the next debt starts. It was never meant to be, per, to be permanent. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness and the atonement starts pointing to Jesus. And John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he says, and he points to him, look, that's the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. That's the perfect Lamb, the once for all sacrifice. See, because Jesus was able to live a perfect and sinless life, when he hung on the cross, the innocent paid for the guilty once for all he paid for us. And Hebrews 10, 10 tells us that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. It's no more credit card debt. It's an endless spending account. Not that we want to be spending on that account. <laughs> but there is no more debt. So Jesus wants to ask you this morning, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? I'm guessing that many of you have already settled that question. Maybe you settled it years ago. Maybe you settled it just recently. When I was 13 years old was the first time I heard the gospel. And I knew it was true because I knew I had a deep sin problem. And I wanted something more. And so I accepted him in that moment I didn't have to be asked twice. I just knew it was true. And in that moment, I crossed over from death to life. But my problem was, I didn't actually know how to live life with Jesus. I didn't know that he was actually offering more than just eternal life. See, as I've been studying the creeds, this is something I wish I had known when I was 13, but this one line in the Nicene Creed, it's just stuck out to me and it's been ringing in my ears all week long. It says this, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. You know, on the surface, that feels a little redundant, doesn't it? Because yeah, he came for us and he came for our salvation, but it's not. He came for us today and he came for our salvation for our tomorrows. He wants to live life with us. So let me tell you another claim that Jesus makes about himself. 
Jesus says that he has come that we may have life and have it abundantly. Let me read this to you in the message. It says, I have come so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. That's what he wants for you. I have come that you may have more and better life, more and better than you ever dreamed of. So let me ask you, do you feel like your life is more and better than you ever dreamed of? Are you living a life in abundance? It wasn't until later in my journey with Jesus when I started becoming a missionary disciple, which is a word that we use around here to characterize what it means to be on this journey with Jesus, following him, being transformed by him, and joining him on his mission to bless the world. And it wasn't until I started following closer to Jesus that I started to actually understand what abundant living meant. When I started to understand that, that actually abundance means walking close to him. It means, it means experiencing him and his gifts, and it means seeing glimpses of eternity. One of the first times I think I really understood this concept of abundance was when my mother became a believer. See, I'd been praying for her for years. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. And about 12 years ago, she called me on the phone to let me know she had accepted Jesus. Now, I had been on my knees for her. I didn't get to preach the gospel to her, but somehow God let me participate in this. Somehow, through the prayers, I got to be a part of this. That is abundance. Seeing God move in people's lives is abundance. But abundance doesn't have anything to do with our circumstances, does it? Because I have also experienced abundance when I have been in some of the darkest, hardest days of my life. Many of you know the story of my daughter when she was in a deep depression. And it was so hard for me to walk alongside her, being numb and shutting me out and me just not knowing what was going to happen. And every day I would get up and I would pray for her. And I've got to tell you, I felt abundance. I felt abundance because my friends were praying for me. I felt abundance because I knew Jesus held me. I felt abundance because I knew Jesus held her. And even though I didn't know what choice she would make or how that story would end, I could say deeply, it is well with my soul. And it is well with her soul. And therefore, I will choose to live in the abundance that Jesus is offering me today. See, our abundance doesn't have anything to do with our circumstances. It's not just when we're high on the mountain. It is also when we are down in the valleys. That's what Jesus offers us. So who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? There may be some of you in this room that haven't actually decided if he really is the Lord, but you know you have a sin problem and you know you have a death problem and he is the answer. So I would beg you to settle that today. Settle it today. We're going to pray in a moment, and I will pray for you, and I would ask you to settle it. Because all we have to do is believe, and in that moment, we cross over from death to life. 
And your sisters in this room, they want to walk alongside you to help you know Jesus more. For the rest of you, I would ask, are you believing him for abundant living today? And if you aren't experiencing this more and better life, why not? What's holding you back? What's holding you back from trusting him more, from walking closer with him? Because that's where real living is found. I know a lot of times we get afraid to surrender something to Jesus. It feels like if we really give something up to him, he's going to actually ask us to do things we don't want to do. Right? I used to think he was going to send me to the other side of the world to be a missionary. I didn't want to do that. But some people do want to do that. And he actually embedded within me a desire that was never in my heart before, and that was the desire to live with him in this way, to do vocational ministry, to actually be a pastor. You know, I told you that when I was asked that question as a little girl, that I would never have answered that this is what I wanted to do. But you know what God has done? He's planted that desire in my heart. So I wanna just encourage you, don't be afraid. God, the God of the universe who gave everything for you and died on the cross for you has done nothing but show you how much he loves you, how much he's willing to sacrifice for you. He's not going to ask you to do something that is not made just for you. Everywhere you go, everything you do, he is wooing us and calling us to just follow alongside him a little bit more. Take another step with him. Be obedient to him in whatever he's asking. That may be loving your neighbor in some extravagant way. It may be changing a career. It may just be forgiving someone. But he is inviting you to abundant living. So ask him what that looks like today. So who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? And are you living like you actually believe that's true? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are the son of God. Lord, we praise you that you are Lord that you came and that you died for us. And, and right now I, I ask that if there's anyone here um, that doesn't know you as Lord yet, that you would just let them pray a simple prayer right now that says, I believe you. I believe you are Lord. Lord, would you help us though to start living like we believe it? To follow after you because that is where real and abundant life is found. Would you go before us today, help us to seek you and follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.